learn from everything that you do. Who would have guessed, okay, when I went to the Philippines that I would be involved with so much disaster medicine or that that disaster medicine would get me to build smaller, more capable assets that would be used in a war and basically save tens of thousands of lives. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. This War Docs episode features retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dr. Bruce Green. Dr. Green is dual boarded in family medicine and aerospace medicine and holds a master's degree in public health from Harvard University. He's held multiple operational and strategic positions and ultimately served as the 20th Surgeon General of the Air Force. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear how General Green's vast experiences with disaster medicine in the Philippines and Hurricane Katrina, holding multiple commands and serving as CENTCOM surgeon and TRANSCOM surgeon, prepared him to lead Air Force medicine. He describes how he and his team were instrumental in developing small, modular, deployable hospitals that could be set up in hours rather than days. You'll also get a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look at military medicine at the highest strategic levels. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Lieutenant General, Dr. Bruce Green to War Docs. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Doug. Really happy to be here. Honored to be among your guests. So, General Green, what led you to pursue a career in Air Force medicine? You know, my story is a little odd because uh, I graduated high school a year early because my dad moved in the job. I uh, graduated from college two years early because I really thought you were supposed to go to college for eight hours a day. So I got a degree in chemistry in two years. So when I graduated at 18, I'd been accepted to medical school and dental school and chose medical school and started medical school at 19. And as I was getting ready to graduate medical school, my dad, or actually the college, my dad kind of said, nobody's going to want to see a 22-year-old doc. You need to go to the military or do something where they'll basically let you practice. And so I did. I took the HPSB scholarship and spent a career in the military. From his point of view, I needed structure. How's that? Well, it was funny. I was reading something from University of Wisconsin Parkland that said that you were the youngest graduate. And then when you applied for HPSP, you had to get a waiver because you weren't 21. Yeah, I was too young. At the time, they wouldn't commission anybody who was less than 21. But one of the lieutenant colonel recruiters basically said, you won't be a, quote, real doctor until you finish your reserve time and finish med school. So he basically worked the waiver to let me get commissioned. So after medical school, you trained in family medicine at Anglin Air Force Base. What drew you to primary care and what were you really planning on doing in the Air Force? Well, it was interesting. I'd actually done some surgical work down at Charity Hospital, working with some of the guys who were writing the books back then. And so I was headed for surgery. And then after doing some surgical rotations, realized that it wasn't necessarily for me. And then the Air Force said they had too many surgeons at the time. And so family practice was kind of a new specialty. And when I interviewed, I really enjoyed talking with the people. And I did some work at Wright-Patterson and ultimately went down to Eglin because I wanted to be a place where there were no other residencies. I wanted to make sure I could do the procedures and be very active. So after serving as a flight surgeon, OIC, and clinic chief at Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii, you then completed a master's degree in public health at Harvard University, followed by a residency in aerospace medicine. 
What spurred your interest in aerospace medicine? And what does an aerospace medicine physician do in the Air Force? You know, it's funny. You go from medical school where you think the public health docs are all kind of weird and why would anybody want to go into public health? Then you get out into practice after residency and deliver a few hundred babies and take care of a lot of patients and realize you're seeing the same things over and over again. And so I was kind of looking for some alternatives. I'd taken some classes in hypnotherapy. I was considering acupuncture. And then the Air Force had a, a longer course where you got a master's in public health and then did aerospace medicine. So I went to Harvard to get the public health degree, really trying to find solutions to some of the things I found very common in medicine that were repetitive across patients where I couldn't find solutions and, were, and was looking for alternatives and ways to basically treat populations instead of always treating the same issues over and over again. So what kind of stuff does a, a flight surgeon in the Air Force do? Do you get to fly the planes or what what happens? Well, the really nice thing about the aerospace medicine residency is they, they had about a, a six-week period during the residency where we really did go through pilot training. We needed to understand the pilots and the navigators and what they did. So I had several landings and several takeoffs, and it was a lot of fun flying those jets and doing some cross-country work. But most of the two years was spent essentially looking at what are the effects of altitude and what are the hyperbaric effects and how do we basically counter that? What are the issues for pilots and how do you understand their families to make certain that they stay healthy and, and optimally ready to do the job? Back when I was uh, first a flight surgeon at Mather, before I did the residency in aerospace, they were pulling alerts all the time. It was very stressful for the families. We were flying B-52s and KC-135s. And so there were a lot of new weapon systems coming on board and a lot of timetables. Some of my least favorite flying was actually B-52s. You fly for about 14 hours and there's about 10 minutes. It's really exciting <laughs> when you do a low-level bombing run. So it's really about understanding the air community and being able to take better care of pilots and navigators and the whole community. There's a lot of research work that goes on in aerospace medicine. But for me, personally, I went because I really wanted the public health training. And then the aerospace was just, I'll say, frosting on the cake. How's that? So was the aerospace medicine linked with Harvard or was that completely separate? Completely separate. You had to be accepted to a public health school. And so Harvard was one of the places that I'd always kind of wanted to go to say I'd attended an East Coast school. Wanted to make sure I measured up. You know, when you're a, a 19-year-old doc, a lot of people look at you kind of askew. And so going back and getting a little bit of training at Harvard probably didn't do my reputation any harm. But you know, I'd had some interesting experiences early on with wing commanders that basically are still used today for some of the ethics violations that went on at that base, using airplanes for things they shouldn't have been using airplanes for. And I was probably headed out the door, but they offered me the second residency. And so I went to do that. I really felt that leaders in the Air Force should be different, should be above it. And so the Air Force was working on its core values of integrity, service before self, and excellence in all we do. And as I went to Harvard and kind of studied there and watched the Air Force evolve, I really wanted to be in a leadership position in the Air Force. So you had a, a rating of chief flight surgeon with over 1,200 flight hours. What is your favorite airframe? I, I saw in your bio, you, you had flown in you know, probably 20 different, including some helicopters. Well, the stuff I enjoyed the most was probably the flying I did in the Philippines with the Jolly Greens. They were two rotor helicopters, but we did a lot of rescue work out over the oceans. I landed on 25-foot seas to take people with fractured hips and open skull fractures out. We went out to one tanker and pulled a, a guy who had a heart attack off and then had to land locally because we couldn't get refueled. It, it was just fascinating. And so I got a lot of work with PJs and doing a lot of 
rescue work and it served me well later when the earthquakes hit and then later the volcano in the Philippines because I was pretty well tied in to all that community that was doing rescue work. Yeah, so that leads in perfectly uh, to our next question. In 1990 and 91, you were there were two significant humanitarian disasters that occurred in the Philippines. First in 1990, the Baguio earthquake measured 7.7 on the Richter scale. A year later in 1991, the eruption of Mount Pinatubo, which was the second largest eruption in the 20th century, where the military responded with Operation Fiery Vigil. Tell us about your role in those disaster relief missions and how the military responded to this humanitarian crisis. When I came out of aerospace medicine, one of the people I'd worked with when I was over at Hickam had become the PACAF surgeon and asked me if I'd go over. They were having some problems with quality. And uh, so he asked me if I'd come over and run the flight surgeon shop. And so I did. I went over there and Honestly, it was kind of the wild, wild west. We were taking care of a lot of things across the Pacific, especially the C-12s and C-130s, but we had an active F-4 mission there too. So a lot of ins and outs, but they had just moved the AIRVAC unit, the AIRVAC, now squadron squadrons, but at that time it was just the AIRVAC unit. They moved it to Yokota, and I became the validating surgeon for all patient movement in the Pacific. So Again, if you think about what I was doing with helicopters and then with the validating surgeon, I was talking to pretty senior people when a Marine got hurt or had a head injury or something that they really needed to get out of country and probably back to the U.S. I was pretty well engaged trying to validate that patient and work with the airbag system to get people uh, back to the care that they needed. It was pretty interesting. We did a 180-page report on neonatal evacuation because the average length for a neonatal evac was about 14 hours. So I did a lot of crazy work as well as taking patients back to the States because I was a pretty aggressive family doc. So there really wasn't a patient sick enough that I wouldn't take them if they needed to go somewhere and tried to train our flight surgeons to basically take on sick patients. It was a great group. And uh, when the earthquake hit, I was in an F-4 simulator, which started shaking. I thought they were just joking with me, you know, waiting for me to jump out of the seat. And it turned out everybody was running out of the building, left me still strapped into the simulator seat. So I jumped out and I was the senior officer for the hospital at the time. And so I ran to the hospital to see what damage we had. And there was a lot of things on the floor and a lot of things had been moved, but nothing that had really, no one was injured, et cetera no calls from the base. And then we got a phone call from the wing commander asking us to go up to Baguio where they had had significant damage where every building over two stories had fallen. And there were ended up being about 1,400 deaths, but a lot more injured. Following the example of General Carlton, actually, with what he had done over in the Middle East out of Germany, I had worked a forward surgical team. And so we had a 19-person forward surgical team that I was leading. So I took that up to Baguio and over the next 10 days, I think we saw about 10,000 patients, uh, most of them fairly minor, but initially for the first two days, we were doing rescue work. It's probably the only amputation I've ever done. I had to amputate a guy's forefoot to get him out from under a building. I ended up getting an airman's medal for it, mainly because the damn building fell down on me and they had to dig me out. I didn't even know it. I just came out cursing at my guys because they weren't helping me enough. So at one point during that rescue, I came out to talk with some of the Philippine leaders that had come in. We were under a factory trying to rescue people who'd been trapped. And uh, General Ramos, who later became president of the country, was out there smoking a cigar and walking around greeting people. And I had to tell him to put out his cigar because there were gas leaks all around the building. And so he wasn't very fond of me when I told him he needed to put out that damn cigar. And then I went back out of the building. But that was a crazy time. We probably didn't have what we needed, but you took what you had and did what you could. So remember climbing up to the, about the third floor of, a, I think it was a Hyatt, which had fallen to the ground, but there were 
some structures sitting up and turned out one room, the doors had basically jammed. And so you had somebody screaming for help and everybody was afraid to go up there. And so I just asked for volunteers and a couple of us went up and took the hinge pins out of the door hinges. We were able to get him out and help him climb down. So it was kind of crazy times. We did a lot of crazy stuff. In hotels downtown, I had one orthopedist that worked for me. Then actually we had a pregnant woman that was trapped and we were trying to get her free in order to do it. We had to do a bilateral hip disarticulation on a corpse so that we could basically get through a small space and get her out of there. Because by three or four days in the Philippines, you were running in trouble with fluids and that kind of thing. So I had a fairly early awakening, if you will. I was a major early lieutenant colonel while I was in the Philippines in those two years. I think I got eight awards, including one from the Philippine government. And of course, that's before the earthquake, because the earthquake took us out of the country. And so I'd done a lot of planning and a lot of work to help us get ready for that. And when we had to evacuate both Clark and uh, Subic, it became quite the event. I wasn't involved with all the teams that were receiving patients, but we were involved staying behind. And so when the big volcano took off, I can tell you that we were eight miles away on land that had been covered by the previous eruption 600 years earlier. So we weren't real sure what was going to happen evacuated to an agricultural college, which just was a building of opportunity and didn't see a lot of casualties there. But over the next few days, of course, with no resources, no power, no water, we started seeing casualties. And so those were interesting times. I can tell you that uh, though most of the oddest brief I ever gave to a man commander was talking to the two-star about what was going to happen when we ran out of STD drugs <laughs> because the, a local uh, entrepreneur had set up a, a shop for some of the soldiers and sailors that were there with us. And we were seeing an innumerable numbers of uh, STDs and Clark was known for that. So it was an interesting commander's brief to basically talk to him about what was we going on with some of the troops once we ran out of medications. So anyway, it was a crazy time in the Philippines. So when you were taking care of the patients from the earthquake, would you bring them to local hospitals or could you evacuate them to Clark or another military base? What did you do with the patients? Even Clark, which was a very large medical center, couldn't have dealt with the mass casualty event we saw. So we leveraged the Jolly Greens and a couple of C-130s. We were sending occasionally with a really sick patient, particularly if they had chest tubes or those kinds of things. I would let one of my nurses go with them on the transport. But for the most part, we were using the fills and the families, and, and most of them went to local hospitals, typically in Manila, because that's where the largest healthcare system was there. I would guess we evacuated, I don't know, probably a couple of hundred. Most of the people, you know, you talk about 14,000 injuries, but the reality is you can treat most of them locally. I did learn a few things there, though. For instance, our guys were treating fractures with plaster, and of course, in a tropical environment, that didn't work very well. And the fills were using pins and, and bamboo shoots. And so later, I don't know whether it was one of our people, but honestly, some of the external fixators and the things we saw later in the war reminded me of what we'd seen in the Philippines. None of that existed at that time. But we did learn that external fixators worked a lot better than plaster or fiberglass. I want to say I remember reading somewhere that, that you had some interaction with the president of the Philippines a little bit before when you were at Hickam before your aerospace medicine. Oh yeah, Imelda and all the shoes. Oh my God, yeah. I was the senior doc at the clinic there. And so when they came out, we had to meet the helicopter. I had to meet with President Marcos because he was he had brought a physician with him, but he needed dialysis and we had to get some things going at Tripler. 
to get some of his care in place before he got civilian care. So yeah, it was kind of a wild time. No, she didn't bring all the shoes with her. Yes, they did bring a lot of treasure with them. Did you have to tell him to put out a cigar? No, no, this was a, a different president from the Philippines. So you follow this additional training with three medical group commands in Lodges Field, Portugal, Mountain Home, Idaho, and Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. Tell us about that progression and the interesting challenges or situations you found with those assignments. Yeah, so Lodges was a, a scheduled move for me from the Philippines. There were only two sites where you could be a med group commander as a lieutenant colonel. And after some of the things I'd done in the Philippines, they'd had some problems with one of the departing commanders at Lodges. And so they asked me if I'd go. And so I went from being in a medical center and running an airspace medicine shop to being in a 10-bed hospital in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. If you look on a map, it's directly across the globe from the Philippines. And so the first thing I asked was, do they have any volcanoes? <laughs> and of course, the answer was no, no volcanoes, which was good. But it was a very strange base because the uh, Air Force did own the land, the Army owned the ship, and the Navy owned the air mission. And so I was flying with P-3s and doing some work with the submarine fleet because they would offload casualties there when they were on a mission in the Atlantic. And literally, the just outside the on the shores of the island, it dropped off to about 3,000 feet. So it was very deep out there in the center of the Atlantic. So the funniest thing about the lodges assignment was that we literally had to tell the wing commander that he needed to close the schools down when the winds hit 60 knots, because you'd get a lot of winds in the middle of the Atlantic, as you'd expect. And if you ask why 60 knots, it's because that's the uh, speed that a six-year-old goes airborne walking up the hill to his school. <laughs> so Lodges was fun. We did a couple of crazy evacs, got a write-up in one of the airman magazines for saving a young airman who'd had a, an arterial bleed in her head. And I literally stole an airplane from the flight line, got in a little trouble for that, but got her to Lonstool where they were able to operate on her. We had her there and less than four hours, which was really the flight time to get there. And they were able to save her life and she was able to come back. I'm not sure whether she made it all the way back to active duty, but she was fully functional and got everything back. So that was good. I learned a lot about command there as a small place, but obviously lots of people issues and a lot about how to interface with the wing and the various units across the wing. We ended up being best hospital in AMC, for which was crazy considering it was a 10-bed hospital and there were a lot of big med centers there. But when I left there, I was headed for Travis and they diverted me. I got a phone call from an old friend who was working at a wing at Mountain Home, Idaho, and said that the wing commander really wanted someone unique who had some unique uh, past history, like what happened in the Philippines and the history in the Azores. And so he said he told ACC and told them that he wanted me to be his commander. And so went out there. We were driving cross country when I got the word. Got to got there in the first week. We were in a, an exercise, an ORI. And so I kind of watched the people because obviously I had no way to interface. But I kind of watched what they were doing. Was frustrated with some of the equipment that we had and the way it was packed and the way they practice. Really, they never set things up because they were afraid to hurt any of the WRM material and kind of told them that that was crazy, that we had to basically train the way we fight. And so I had a couple of guys who'd been in the first Gulf War essentially show them how to combat pack a tent. And we had a new warehouse. And so when I really did take command, I was able to get the guys to go out into the warehouse and got permission from ACC to have them do some combat packing changed the rules a little bit, but we built the first 10-bed hospital. And the whole idea was to fit it all into a single airplane. At that time, a 141. 
so that we could get to the fight. And so I think that's why Dave McLeod hired me, the wing commander that brought me on. He really wanted somebody who was going to be thinking about combat operations and what it took to be there when you were needed. So we built that. I probably end up having my guys set that up every six weeks for about a year and a half as we would demonstrate the capability to all the senior leaders who came through that base. And so it got a lot of attention. I basically incorporated some of the things that General Carlton had done down at Wilford Hall. So we brought in the CCAT equipment and we brought in the forward surgical equipment and we basically made so everything would fit in, I think, 10 pallets. I can tell you that the fun story there. So first time I showed it, I told the wing commander said, we got uh, 12th Air Force, which was our regional command, coming up. And he just got over from Europe, where he'd been working in just south of Turkey and Iraq. And he said, you know, I want you guys, this is to all the group commanders, I want you guys to show me some things that are truly innovational so that we can show it to them, show them what a combat wing can do. So I waited till after the meeting, and I suggested that we set up this 10-bed hospital. And he said, I don't know, Bruce. He said, I know you're building that, but is it ever tested before? I said, nope. And he said, well, what do you have in mind? I said, well, I said, I'd like for him to come out and see the troops in the morning. We'll show him a, a palace that's configured on a 141. And then bring him back in the afternoon, and we'll show him a hospital. At the time, the setup was for uh, about 24 to 48 hours for a field hospital. And so we came back. We said, not only set it up, but did some triage or some moulage on some casualties and basically ran him through it. When they got to the OR, we gowned him up and asked him what he wanted to do with this patient with a traumatic amputation, walked him out through the dental clinic where they were finished their triage and were back showing the equipment. And they were pretty impressed. But the wing commander said, why don't you take the wives through that? They, they'd enjoy this. And so I said, sure. So the wives came over. We did the same thing, you know, with the moulage casualties. I told everybody, this is the first time we'd shown it. I just said for each person who headed the section that they built, I said, just show them your pride and tell them what you built here and how it's going to work and show them how you've alphabetized the drugs and how things are ready so that you can use them on the first day when you get there. Because we'd set it up in five to six hours. And so we walked them through. And afterwards, as the women are getting in the car, the wing commander's wife, Ann, said, she said, this is really impressive. How many of these are there? I said, just this one. She said, they need to make more of these. I said, yeah, they do. And I'm going to work on that. And then and she said, how many times have you shown this? I said, this is the first time. She said, you showed this for the first time to a two-star who's visiting my husband? I said, yeah. Was he, did he like it? She said, Bruce, you've got big brass cojones. <laughs> Most places, if you watch world news, when they bring in their medics at the end of the deployment, they can kind of tell if something serious is going to happen. And I didn't want it to be that way. There's a lot of injuries that occur in the industrial buildup. In fact, one of the places where General Carleton's CCAT teams and the Special Ops Forward Surgical Team made a huge difference was with a patient I think he talked about that had been simply eviscerated when he'd been hit by a, a backing up vehicle that caught him on a trailer hitch. And so we had the forward surgical teams and the CCAT teams and the airbag people all there because, you know, at that time I was transcom surgeon and we'd put all the assets there at uh, K2. And so we saved that life early in the war. But it was pretty interesting. I think that the stuff that General Carlton did, we built on that. And so the answer to your question, back to commands, I had a unique time at the Azores. Mountain Home was one of those things where I got to play with all the things I'd learned in the Philippines and the Azores. And then when I got to Eglin, it was back to how do we practice medicine and what's wrong with the continuity of care in the military and how do we improve service and, 
uh, how do we basically enhance GME? So Eglin was bringing me back to reality and not so much wartime, if that makes sense. So the Joint Commission didn't visit the Azores Hospital? They didn't visit at that time. The Joint Commission didn't visit overseas. And so, no, they did. They did at Mountain Home and they did at Eglin, obviously, did fine in all those inspections and had those things ready. More importantly, I think at, at Mountain Home, the focus was so much on the wartime mission and trying to build some new things that would serve the Air Force well that I talked to the boss as we'd done all these demonstrations. We took that 10-bed hospital. He actually got the aircraft, and we took it up to Cold Lake, Canada for one of the ORIs and got a, an outstanding on the ORI, but more importantly, actually took care of one of the people who had a heart attack there during the buildup and took care of somebody who had an acute appendicitis, and they actually operated on him there in the tent. It was pretty impressive on an exercise to actually have our guys do it. Like I said, I always believe you should train you should fight. Right. I mean, that's the only way to do it. Otherwise, you're not going to know what to do when you have to do it for real. Yep, exactly right. So you were the CENTCOM surgeon in the late 90s, which is, you know, obviously pre-9-11 times. What kind of concerns were in that CENTCOM joint command at that time? See, I was so ready to stay at Eglin on those white sand beaches. You know, I'd planned, but my predecessor was there like four years. They let me stay for 15 months before they pulled me into that CENTCOM job. And so I got down there and Jim Radebush, who was the surgeon before me, basically knew every foreign health minister and had traveled widely across the 25 countries. And I knew nothing about Central Command. I mean, zero zilch, nothing. And I had a staff of eight great people, okay? But in essence, I, I laugh now because one of my first conversations with my senior enlisted was how I was going to have to you know, learn how to do orders and cut my own and make my own reservations and do all this when I traveled. And so I kind of Took it on to shape up the shop and get us to work more as a team because they were working as a lot of individuals. All of them had different uh, things they were following. But my first trip over, first thing I noticed was that nobody was paying any attention to our guidance. And so here we put out all this guidance in public health and what they needed to have and to be ready for a deployment to the Middle East. And nobody was following the guidance. And so I started measuring what they were doing, when they, what people had and didn't have when they got there. And we started checking on why. And as we started checking, it started improving and people started having the things that they needed. They had the malarials they needed or they weren't, you know, at that point they were held until they got what they needed to go out into the field. And so it was an interesting experience. That was the first year or so. And then the second year we got involved with Saddam Hussein, who was, you know, that that time they were finding all kinds of things he buried, like airplanes and the UN group that was looking for all the biological things, especially anthrax. We were getting a lot of reports saying that they had it. And so when he started acting up again, then we did a little exercise. Actually, it wasn't an exercise called Desert Fox, where we brought in another carrier, three carrier groups there, and built up about 25 or 30,000 people to essentially get him to stand down. And so it didn't escalate beyond that. But I was really glad that we had gotten people to comply with the CENTCOM guidance going over there. Fascinating. The, the hardest piece was because of those anthrax reports, I really didn't think that it was reasonable for us to put people into harm's way if there was a chance that he could use anthrax. And so I talked with the joint staff surgeon and really recommended hard that we should start the anthrax vaccinations. And so they said that in order for that to happen, that General Zinni at the time, who was my four-star Marine, great guy, one of my best bosses. I told him essentially I didn't think we could send people in without having them have the protection they needed when they went in. And so he asked me to build a brief for him to take to the 
to SecDef. Actually, it ended up being DepSecDef. But I built the brief and uh, gave it to Adam McCowan, and he started laughing and said, you don't understand what briefings are like here in Washington. You're going to have to give us the whole shebang, how you're going to do it, how it's going to be implemented, how the services are going to do it. And so then I had to pull all the services. My poor public health doc, we pulled all the services plans together, and the Army's was the best. So I had him do search and replace on the Army's plan. And uh, literally, we replaced everywhere it said Army will. We put CENTCOM will, and so we built the plan and sent it back up. I talked to Fred Gerber before I did that because he'd written the Army plan. He got Fred to agree that we could do that, and so sent it back to town. He was excited, and General Zinnig briefed the SECDEF, and that's why some of you guys, if you were around back in the 97 time frame, that's why we started the anthrax vaccinations. Yeah, I'm so, old enough to remember my butt being sore from that for a while. And my boss wasn't too happy with me. He got the six shots, as did I. He got a lot sore than I did, but yeah, he wasn't too happy when he actually had to get those shots. You were the command surgeon for the U.S. Transportation Command and Headquarters Air Mobility Command when 9-11 occurred. Tell us about the concerns and challenges faced by Transcom early on in OEF. So they sent me from CENTCOM up to Space Command, which was an interesting dynamic because Space Command, when you got up there, all their stuff was uh, 35-year-out strategic plans because everything was so expensive, you know, when you're launching... uh, billion dollar satellites. So I spent some time up there and learned kind of how they built their strategic plans. And pretty interesting. And got to know that if you're when you're working with military facilities, the true measure of success is when you get them all on the phone and you're not answering their questions, other medical commanders are answering each other's questions. So I started regular calls to get people talking. And then when I finished it, sent at uh, Space Command, I really didn't know what they were going to do with me. General Carlton surprised me when I did make general officer. And so now having been selected, they chose to send me to Transcom. And I I was surprised, honestly. I'll I'll tell you that I I was still young and I was still pretty mouthy. At one point in my time at Space Command, I had all 14 general officers at the time in the Air Force at one of the meetings that he hosted and happened to be at my base. Basically, he sat me down and counseled me on being more respectful that I shouldn't be irritating the certain general. But I've always been a big believer that you got to speak up and, and make sure that the emperor never doesn't know that he doesn't have clothes. I mean, you, if you don't have people who give you straight talk, you're going to make some really bad decisions. So when I got promoted and then they sent me to Transcom, I actually asked him, I said, of all the people you have, and very talented people, why me? And he says, he said, I saw what you did at Mountain Home. And he says, I know you're going to go there and you're going to keep me well informed and you're going to make a difference. And so I went to Transcom and six weeks after my promotion ceremony, on my very first trip, I went out to Seattle to visit McCord. And that's when 9-11 happened. And so, you know, it was interesting. I spent pretty much all day in a command center talking with the Pentagon and ACC trying to get them to realize that from my experience with earthquakes and falling down buildings, that it was going to be a longer rescue effort than kind of where they were going. As they were moving literally all of our assets towards New York when we thought there were going to be 20 or 30,000 casualties, I was arguing pretty strenuously that we didn't know what was going to happen next and we should send less in there. Not that we shouldn't support it, but we should send less. Anyway, by the end of the day, uh, they'd sent... A lot of, at that time, they'd actually adopted those smaller hospitals. So they sent a lot of now what's called EMEDs. And so those EMEDs were being shipped up to New York. And my boss, because McGuire was the closest place, so my four-star, 
Tony Robertson out at AMC gave me a call the other day and said, there's an awful lot of medics descending on my base out at McGuire. He said, maybe you should call the Pentagon and tell them you want to go out there and lead that. I think I'd been arguing against it all damn day. And so the end game was that I called and talked with General Carlton and General Radebush. And General Carlton said it was a big enough mission that they should send more than one doc out there. So senior doc. So I went out and they'd already sent up the ACC surgeon, which was Klaus Schaefer at the time. And so when I got there, since he had already started talking with the press and doing those things, we basically went on 12-hour shifts where he took days and I took nights. And what I did at nights was really I'd go around to see whether or not people were really ready to fight. And so what I found was that most of the units didn't understand combat packing. They didn't know where things were in their units. And so I would go around and offer coins to people who could show me that they were truly ready to take care of a casualty. And all I would do is ask them questions about what they were going to do with this and that. And it's always more fun with the enlisted. But when the nurses got the hospital ward already and told me that they were ready to see a patient, I asked who the youngest airman was. And he identified himself. I handed him a mop and he said, you're going to be a busy guy. And He said, why is that? I said, well, where is the bucket that goes under that toilet? And of course, none of them knew. I said, so your job is... When the guys come in here and have diarrhea, your job all night is to clean up the mess when that drops to the floor because you don't have anything to put it in. They kind of got the message, said if you didn't have it inside, didn't know where it was, didn't matter if it was out in the pallet, you had to figure out how to use this stuff. And then as I continued those tours over about five days, I finally ran into an emergency room doc who basically had brought equipment up from Wilford Hall. And when I went and talked with him, not only did he have everything set up where his meds were available, he knew exactly where things were. He also had ultrasound that I'd never seen these small ultrasound he had to basically identify and do diagnostics right there in a tent in the hospital. And so that was the five days. And then we had to get everybody home. And on the way home, because of all the grief about air transport, by the way, I was the only person probably in the air other than CAP, the Combat Air Patrol, on 912, because they flew me from Seattle straight across the country in a C-130 to get me over to basically support that effort. Anyway, when I was driving home, because we decided to rent a car and drive home because we'd gotten a lot of grief from the folks about how ACC had gotten that air. So I drove home and got back, went to the office, talked with the folks, was exhausted, went home to get some rest and got a phone call from the AOC, which was the Air Operations Center, telling me that they couldn't talk to me on a stew, that they needed me to come in. So donned a uniform, went back in and was told that essentially the president had decided to go to war in Afghanistan and that they wanted to tramp the CENTCOM, said I would know the plans and basically that I should give them a plan for airbag with a rough order of magnitude on how many people I was going to need to go in and support this effort to go into Afghanistan. I looked at my two planners, I think it was a major and a captain, and said, okay, so why don't you tell me what the airbag plans are first? Of course, there were none. And, I, and then they asked me, well, what are the plans from CENTCOM? And of course, what I knew was there were general plans, but no plan for Afghanistan. But I knew enough about the region. So again, I was in the right place at the right time. And I knew we'd have a, both the northern and the southern. And so I showed them the way that they'd go in, not knowing exactly which bases it would be. But anyway, they did go in through K2, and then we did have the setup in Oman. And so that's where I put the assets. And when I put them in, we asked for about 50 spots. And uh, I put a bunch of things at Lonstool. And when they first came back, CENTCOM was really happy because I hadn't asked for a lot. I'd only asked for about 50 slots. I was putting in certain CCAT teams and certain airbag teams. 
And they basically came back after a couple of days because somebody said, well, how many casualties can they move? And I said, well, the way I've set it up with kind of a daisy chain operation, I can probably move two to 500 a day if you really get into a bind. But I have to create a rotational force where people are flowing in from Lonstool on every plane that comes out because that was the magic. It was using every plane. So when they flew in, they brought in supplies and important equipment. And when they flew out, they were empty. And so that's when we could bring casualties out. So I set up this system to basically have the ability to do that with lots of being in the hub and minimizing what was forward. And then they came back and said, well, what if it's more than 500? I said, well, we've just exercised the, the craft where we leverage the civilian aircraft and we fit them with oxygen and be able to basically use those. I said, if I had to, I could probably move as many as 2,200 or 2,400 a day if we activate the craft, but I need two things. I need a five-day warning because it takes that long to configure the aircraft. And I said, the other thing I need is I need you to tell me where the hell I'm going to take 22 to 2,400 casualties a day because there's no hospital in Europe or the U.S. that's ready to take that. And so I need a, a, somebody to tell me where you want me to take them. And so that was the beginning of the war. That was the first night. And so crazy times. They were crazy times. So when the ultimate number of casualties that needed to be evacuated was much less than forecasted, not 2,000 a day, what was the plan after getting them to the hub of Launch Tool? It seemed like most of them wound up going to the National Capital Region. They did. It's because of flight times out of Launch Tool there. There were several things discussed. I was kind of enamored by the idea of using polar flights because... We could have built up someplace like Elmendorf in Alaska, and it would actually have been a shorter flight to get them to Elmendorf and then bring them down to the West Coast and the East Coast, where we could distribute, again, more simply with shorter legs. But that wasn't the way the system was set up, and that wasn't where they put the resources or the manpower. And so Lonsdule became the primary way out. Inserlik was built up for a short while to support K2. But it really kind of wound down fairly quickly and everything went up to Lonstool. And then once it was coming out of Lonstool, Andrews did make the most sense in terms of an East Coast hub. I don't think they were all supposed to be states there. There ended up being a lot more that stayed at the national capital area than what we expected. We anticipated that they'd go to all the major medical centers, Eisenhower, Wilford Hall, Portsmouth. But it ended up that really back home here for a lot of different reasons, but one of the big reasons was because it was uh, to keep political support by bringing the casualties through Washington. Then they were greeted by very senior officers, and it kind of added some motivation as they brought people through. So I don't fault them for it, but that wasn't necessarily the plan. The plan was to go to Andrews and then from there to distribute them to where they were closest to their home. And so, but it kind of turned out that the way we did it was to stop at Andrews. And with that, Andrews built up a very significant restoration and amputation and all the services that you see there today built up because of the large flow of casualties through, I say Andrews, but the planes went to Andrews, but the casualties went to Walter Reed. So in 2003, you then went to Wilford Hall to be the, the commander there. I mean, that's during really high op tempo in OEF and OIF. How did personnel from the 59th Medical Wing support the war effort both in the deployed arena and also take care of their level one mission for trauma in San Antonio. 
enough tempo was high enough that it was clear that one service was going to struggle to try and keep up with it and keep up with its peacetime mission. And so they basically decided to kind of split the workload between Army, Navy, and Air Force. And so they came to me asking if we could basically staff the hospital at Balad. And so we did. It was interesting how you picked commanders and who you put in charge and what the focus was going to be. But from the beginning, we wanted it to be quality care. There were a lot of problems with wound infections and insufficient debridement at the time. And so the guys went over there with a quality mindset to build that up. We also sent over a trauma czar who were basically had been training for a number of, number of years. So Don Jenkins was made the trauma czar and started doing things across the theater, including the things that were most useful were getting feedback from law school physicians who were receiving the casualties after the initial resuscitation. Typically, they'd be flown out if they were stable enough within 24 hours of being injured and make it to launch stool. And so it was such a rapid airbag that you'd think, okay, what can go wrong? But a lot of things go wrong. You don't really want to send people on a 12-hour flight up to launch stools in six to 12 hours and basically have them with debris inside wounds. It's you know, just basically festering infection. And so Don set up some video conferences where they'd get feedback directly from the physicians who were caring for the patients at the next stage of the game. And that really worked wonders because it's funny. It's one thing to think you've done a good job, and it's another to be told you did a good job or not. And so I think that feedback system made a huge difference. Following this assignment, you began working in the office of the Surgeon General. Your first job was as the Assistant Surgeon General for Healthcare Operations and then Deputy Surgeon General. Tell us about that transition and what were the significant issues? Well, I went from Wilfrid Hall where I thought I was busy and then I went to Washington where I found out that you really don't know how busy you can be until you're responding to every single thing that goes on. So I thought I'd be busy going up to operations, continuing the war effort and keeping our trauma systems and airbag systems well-oiled and ready. And probably within the first three months after I got up there, we had Katrina. And so everything shifted again. I spent really literally weeks basically supporting the effort to try and rebuild some of the things down there. And initially to get the right assets in, we sent one of those small hospitals down into New Orleans, which actually decompressed significantly some of the stuff that was going on there. And then once the hospital ship and things got there, then people were able to be relocated. And it was a hairy time. And Especially with the initial entry, there were a lot of great plans that had been put together for Katrina, but the medical force was tied in with the joint force and got kind of trapped in Mississippi. They couldn't get down there. The bridges were all out, et cetera. And so when it became really, how do you move all these, both people and supplies, supplies in and people out, we went back to the same thing I'd learned at Transcom. And basically, you looked at your supply chain and we put the right assets down there along with some of the HHS assets and essentially started screening people. So from the time they arrived there, which was Wednesday night, and then the water was still too high to get to the places where the people were trapped other than by helicopter. But by Friday, we were moving, we think we moved almost 3,500 people out, including the sickest. But I mean, five days into this. And so there were a lot of lessons learned by the civilian community as well as by the city over Katrina. And I wasn't unhappy that we we had to get the airfield clear so we could get our guys there. 
And then once we were there, we made a huge difference within 48 hours. If you ever go back and look at the taped news reports, watch her, Hernando Rivera talking about what he's seen in the city on Thursday and then on Friday and Saturday, how rapidly that turned around. And that was a massive transportation effort to get those people out of there and to places where there were services and not just medical services, food and water and clothing and shelter. And so healthcare is more than the trauma teams. And I'm probably the proudest of 12,000 casualties that were pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan that probably wouldn't have survived in previous wars and 90,000 during my time up through uh, 12 that basically were brought home safely. But it's not always about the care we do and what the doctors can do. A lot of it's about what we now call social determinants of care, the housing, the shelter, the food, safety. And so that's what we learned in Katrina. You can't focus just on medical response, even though that's what we excelled at at the time. You have to figure out how to get people to the services they need. So you stayed in the Pentagon and ultimately became the 20th Surgeon General of the Air Force. What would you say as the Surgeon General in that role, what was your most difficult leadership challenge during that time? And and what did you do about it? Well, you've kind of heard me talk about Wilford Hall and some of the things we've done and things we were proud of in terms of trauma care and air vac, et cetera. But on the day I was promoted, when the Army Surgeon General, which was Eric, uh, walk through the line, and typically you exchange coins with uh, surgeons. He basically told me, Bruce, I have to tell you that I'm going to have to walk away from all the agreements we've made in San Antonio. I've been working on that for probably six years since the bracket first came out in 2005. And so I say six, five or six, that's 2004, we started the planning. So that was pretty interesting. So I made an appointment to talk with him and talk with he and his deputy And they really felt that they had to protect Army medicine assets down there. And so in essence, now that BRAC was coming to its conclusion, he was essentially telling me that my Air Force people in San Antonio would work for him. And so I kind of got the four stars involved, as you might imagine. And they agreed that we'd build some type of an agreement. And so it was tough. We went for several months back and forth trying to figure out how to share the markets and where we both had advantages and disadvantages. And and there's some things that still haven't been solved today with regards to the things that med techs can do in an army hospital or even in a joint hospital, depending on that joint hospital and who's overseeing it. And so that was probably the toughest. And so for months, we went back and forth and finally got an agreement that they'd agreed to. And I told the four-star, I thought that my four-star, I thought we were there only for them the next day after I told my four-star to tell me that they weren't going to agree to that either. And so Eric and I had a pretty decent heart-to-heart where I told him that I honestly didn't trust him. I said, we're in this together. And I said, but if you can't work with me, we can't stick with what we've agreed to. Then I said, I just don't know where to go from here. And so he kind of looked at me strange, couldn't believe that there was a trust issue as we went back and forth. And so we kind of came to an agreement that we'd get that done. We did. I was hosting because of all this. I'd been hosting a thing that called the Futures Forum, which was a an effort based on some of the things I was seeing with things falling apart to get into the interagency and have people talk about what needed to be done to create a better federal system of healthcare and what it was that we wanted to see in in healthcare over time. That led to a lot of great initiatives, but that futures group was something that Eric had been part of, I think 10 years earlier. I'm not sure who hosted it back then. 
And so Eric really enjoyed that and got into that. And we became really, really close over the next year or two as we worked through hundreds of issues. But it really took talking plain talk and, and essentially getting the discussion going and then getting involved in things we both believed in. And by the way, the foundation of that futures group, he'll laugh, but with all my international travel at CENTCOM and TRANSCOM, the one thing from talking with hundreds of people around the world in various, very senior health ministers' offices, I love to talk with the people behind the scenes. You know what the one universal truth is with regards to what people want? All of us want a better life for our children. Isn't that interesting? And so if you talk about building a better future, something that's going to serve that your children are going to be part of and be proud that you helped lead them there. Everybody wants to be part of that discussion. And so in that futures group, we talked about genomics and pharmacogenomics, and we looked at how technology was going to change the world. We talked a lot about the EHRs and the need for electronic records and the sharing of information. I was building pretty robust medical home system across the Air Force with team-based care, trying to get the patient to be much more active in their care. We were working with Mrs. Obama on working health versus health care. And so all those agenda items had been discussed, and many of them came not by me to those people, but by people who attended across the interagency, those futures groups, trying to figure out how to build a better world that our children would be proud of. And so it worked. So what is the most memorable story from your time as Surgeon General? We're actually kind of looking for maybe a Pentagon story, really behind the scenes, something that you'd say, and this was crazy. I can't believe this happened. Gosh, let me think. So inside the Pentagon. So probably the craziest thing that happened was around the time of the Walter Reed fiasco. And so 2007, I wasn't uh, the surgeon yet, but I had talked to Evan before he went over to do that notorious press conference. And I basically, he had just come from the secretary's office and he was going over to do a press conference and kind of show that there were a lot of things being done to improve the rooms and the general atmosphere for all the casualties that were there at Walter Reed. As I saw him in the hallway and he told me what he was going to do, I said, Kevin, I don't think you're going to be able to turn this around with a press conference. It's going to take more than that. I said, you may want to be very cautious here. And so the really crazy thing was later that day when he took the reporters around, obviously it turned into just a fiasco. And so that was probably one of the craziest things I was involved with. And they chose, a, when they fired the secretary of the army and hired an Air Force, one of the people who'd been working in the Air Force, I knew him fairly well. And I saw him later, several weeks into this now, when there's still all this negative press with regard to what's happening. And I kind of asked, I said, I'm surprised that you've left Dr. Kiley kind of in the loop here. And the answer I got was very telling. He said, you know, when you have a lightning rod and basically that's pulling all the negative energy out, he said, you don't want to let that lightning rod go too quickly. And that tells you about politics, right? I mean, that just kind of tells you that you've got the best intentions, but when something happens, God help you if you're the lightning rod and they basically let you continue to pull in all the negative energy. So that's, and I, and I love Kevin. He, I know he was trying to do the right thing, but I know George and I watched George excel and come out of that really superbly, but it was just kind of a sad thing to watch in terms of leadership. And so I don't know of anything that was stranger than that. And that occurred over about a three or four week period. So it wasn't a single event. 
And it wasn't that I was so bright and wouldn't have made the same mistakes. Not at all. I might have made exactly the same mistakes. But once you become a lightning rod for negative energy, God help you. So what is something the public may not know about Air Force medicine that you wish people knew? You know, I'm so proud of Air Force medicine. I spent my whole career, obviously, doing that for 34 years, a little longer if you count some of the time in the reserves. I think that the most important thing about any organization is being a values-based organization. I loved being part of integrity, service before self, and excellence in all you do. I mean, I could live by that. I talked about it at every speech, every place I went. I tried to make certain that people knew we had a set of values and that those values were important and need to be lived every day. I also made certain that the message would resonate with our enlisted force because when I brought in my chief, Charlie Cole, he was a full-up partner. We did every briefing together. When we would get up on stage, I would do a couple slides, he'd do a couple slides. And essentially, we were so close in terms of what we were doing because we were tied into those values that people would never know that we rarely practice. We kind of went in and and did that to get people to join us as we tried to move forward. And so the motto I set for the Air Force was trusted care anywhere. And there's still some version of that that's still in place. And I think that trust is based on those values. And so I love being part of the Air Force. And that's what I'd tell you is the greatest part of my experience in the Air Force. So if your great, great grandchildren pulled this podcast out of somewhere and they're listening to it, what was something that you'd want them to hear about your career in military medicine? You know, it's not just a career in military medicine. I'd tell them that learn from everything that you do. Who would have guessed, okay, when I went to the Philippines that I would be involved with so much disaster medicine or that that disaster medicine would get me to build smaller, more capable assets that would be used in a war and basically save tens of thousands of lives. The message isn't about the military docs only. It's really about everybody realizing that wherever they are, they should be learning and taking what they learn and applying it to the next thing that they do, because that's what's going to make the world better. We've been speaking with the 20th Surgeon General of the Air Force, retired Lieutenant General Dr. Bruce Green on Wardock's podcast. Bruce, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for the service that you provided to our nation. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on your show here. I enjoy all the interviews that you do, and I hope I haven't talked too long. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.